we're in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we're grateful for this Wednesday night, and it is uh, just so good to be together once again in this place to worship you in spirit and in truth, to look at your inspired word that is profitable and illumines the path that we're to walk. As we look at the churches of Asia Minor, Father, one thing that we can just surmise from this opening section is that they needed a revelation. They needed to know that you were still on the throne, that you cared about them, that you were concerned, and that you were sovereign. It was tough sledding in the first century for many, many Christians. Not only was there Roman persecution, but there was persecution from many Jewish religious people as well. And it was a hard time to be a Christian, Lord, just like in other parts of the world, even at this very moment. It is very difficult for much of our brethren to be Christians. It's, in many cases, life and death situations. In Revelation, I believe one insight that we need to have tonight is that these people, these churches in Asia Minor, needed to know that you are on the throne, that you are the glorious risen Messiah, and that you're in the midst of your church, and that you will never leave her, nor will you forsake her. So tonight, Lord, as we um, look at your word, look at what your spirit has breathed onto the pages of Holy Scripture. Would you breathe your word into our hearts tonight? Refresh souls, strengthen faith. For those who don't know you tonight, may they come to know you. And as we tread on what I would consider, like all scripture, holy ground, may you give us insight and wisdom and a heart to obey you. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. Revelation 1. So uh, last week, as we did an introduction, I had put up on the screen, I didn't do it, my wife did the graphic, verses one through eight. And if you were here last week, we got to verse, do you remember? One A. No, just kidding. We got, we got to verse three. So with that in mind, let's just read from the beginning again, and we'll just come up to verse four, and then we'll kick off from there. The revelation of Jesus Christ. See the word of revelation there? It's apocalypsis or apocalypse. It's where we get the English word apocalypse. It's apocalyptic literature. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ or from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Here we take it as God the Father to show to his doulos or bondservants the things which must shortly take place. He sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. He's going to see many things in this book. It's a visionary book in many ways, which he will record. He says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy or of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. It's been pointed out that We're blessed when we read any scripture, but this specific book does give a blessing for those, notice in verse three, who will read, those who will hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. You know, Jesus, when he was in the upper room, he said, you call me master and Lord, and you're right, that's what I am. If I, your master and Lord, did this, and this this is this example of washing your feet, You ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should follow. 
Blessed are you if you do these things, not just hear these things, do these things. You know, the Christian life really does come down to whether or not you're going to actually do what you hear and what you read. It's probably the biggest challenge for all of us as Christians to know the word of God and actually want to do it. And you need to make up your mind, if you're going to be a strong Christian, you need to make up your mind ahead of time, before temptation comes knocking, before the great temptation to give up comes to your door. You have to make up your mind ahead of time like Daniel did in Daniel 1.8. He made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. In the majesty of the book of Revelation, there are all kinds of allusions to the Old Testament. Many scholars have said there's no direct quotations, although there's very close quotations, which we'll talk about in a moment. But many allusions, not illusions with an I, but allusions with an A, alluded to. Here is how it breaks down, at least according to one source. 79 allusions from the book of Isaiah are found in Revelation. 53 from the book of Daniel. I think most people who hear about the book of Revelation think that most of the allusions are to Daniel, but there's actually more in Isaiah uh, in total. 48 from the book of Ezekiel, 43 from the Psalms, Exodus is referenced or alluded to 27 times, Jeremiah 22 times, Zechariah 15 times, Amos 9 times, and the book of Joel 8 times. Hundreds and hundreds of allusions to Old Testament sources found in the book of Revelation so that the book is anchored in all kinds of scripture. And one of the uh, insights that we get is that this particular author had to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. What he records in this uh, section is incredible, just like all scripture, but it's just another evidence that the Bible is divine and not human in origin. This is an incredible testimony, as I mentioned, to its divine authorship. One author calls these allusions a rebirth of images from the Old Testament. And so this is the message that is given now through John to the churches. I mentioned to you in verse 1, the genre is apocalyptic based upon the word revelation. It is also a prophecy. Look at verse 3, the words of this prophecy. And it is also a letter. There's only a few books in the New Testament that are not addressed to a specific audience, and they are Matthew, Mark, and John. Outside of that, every other book, gospel, letter, revelation, is addressed to an individual or a church or a group of individuals or churches. The book of Revelation is no exception. John addresses the letter, verse 4, Revelation 1, to the seven churches that are in Asia, that is Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And he opens the letter by saying, grace to you. We had a prologue in the third person. Now John writes in the first person. He says, grace to you and peace from him who was or who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now you notice the word or the number seven twice in verse four, seven churches in Asia and the seven spirits who are before his throne. You'll see the number seven is prominent all over the book of Revelation and in the the numerology of the Bible or the numeric uh, evidences of scripture, the number seven is obviously very prominent and the number seven means perfection or completion. So that's the number seven. There were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. 
These seven churches will be named, and we'll get into the details of how they appear to be on a postal circular route, like a messenger would carry a message to a group of individuals along this route. We'll talk about the road in a second. I'll show you a map in a second. But there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. For example, the Church of Colossae, we're studying Colossians on Sunday morning, is in Asia Minor. Troas is in Asia Minor. That's Acts 20. I think it's verse 5. You have, um, I think it's, uh, the other one would be Heropolis, which is also mentioned in uh, Colossians. And uh, so that's at least 10 churches in Asia Minor. So you might ask the question, well, why are these seven uh, pointed out? What's the significance of these seven? Some have said it's because they're along this postal route. Sean, if you go ahead and just throw it up on the screen. Uh, the seven churches of Revelation, there you have the map, and you have Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Ephesus, and Laodicea. If you look at the numbers, you can see the corresponding location. So the way that the churches are listed in Revelation seems to be a kind of a postal route. Almost imagine like an ancient mailman who had mail, how he would go about his route, or you may say, in this case, a FedEx driver or a UPS driver, and he, how he would go about the route. So this letter opens, verse 4, with grace to you and peace. You cannot have peace without grace, and that's a common opening of a New Testament letter. It comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, this description in verse 4 would lead many to believe that this is a description of Jesus Christ. However, you're going to see in a breakdown in a moment that Jesus is addressed separately from this first address in verse 4. So that the bulk of commentators that I have read say that the first opening grace to you in peace is from God the Father, who is and who was and who is to come or as it could be rendered, who is to be. Um, this particular opening would hearken back to the divine name found in Exodus 3.14, when Moses asked God, whom shall I say sent me unto the people of Israel? And God says, I am who I am. You could render this him who is and who was and who will be. It speaks of the eternality of God that he always was, he always is, always was, and always will be. He has no beginning and no end. God is eternal. And so grace and peace, you could say, come from the triune God. Grace and peace, verse 4, uh, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. If you've done any study of the book of Revelation, you know that there's a lot of differences of opinion about these seven spirits. Who are they? these seven spirits before the throne. Well, you'll notice as you skip ahead to verse five, the third address comes from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So you have what seems to be here, God the Father, uh, the Holy Spirit in the, at the end of verse four, and Jesus Christ. So a, a greeting of grace and peace from the triune God. You might say, well, how is it that the Holy Spirit would be described as seven spirits? Well, remember the number seven is all over the book, and the book is highly symbolic. So it could be, some scholars believe that this describes the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit recorded in the book of Isaiah, namely Isaiah 11. You could look at verse 2. 
And there's, there's different uh, characteristics or modes or ways in which the Spirit works. And so some see a reference here to the book of Isaiah. Uh, seven being the number of completion just would stand for the complete ministry of the Holy Spirit. There are different uh, takes on this particular uh, section, but I think the consensus of scholarship does believe it's the Holy Spirit. Um, take a look at Revelation 5 for a second. This is an interesting text. Revelation 5, skip ahead for a second. John is going to see in the throne room of God the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also going to be described as a lamb in verse 6. And he says, I saw Revelation 5, 6 between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Now remember, the book of Revelation is filled with symbolism. Jesus is not literally a lamb, but he has a lamb-like ministry, referring to probably the imagery of the Exodus and the Passover lamb. The lamb was standing as if slain, having seven horns. Now Jesus doesn't literally have seven horns, but here it's a picture of power and its perfection. A horn is a picture of power. And seven eyes, Jesus doesn't literally have seven eyes, but it speaks of his omniscience, symbolism, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You can see, once again, how these symbols are not always easy to understand. But Jesus was, in his earthly ministry, anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism. He went around by the power of the Holy Spirit doing good. And so in some way, there is a connection between the triunity of God and these descriptors. The focus or the longest description is going to be on the person of Jesus Christ that's found in verse five. But just uh, another note, in Isaiah 61, when Jesus read from the uh, the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue at Nazareth, he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. So the link between Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit could be seen here. This interpretation, by the way, that the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit goes back to Victorinus in the late third century. And so uh, this, we'll just take this for what the consensus of scholarship says, that it's a blessing from God the Father, the Spirit, and verse 5, Revelation 1, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. See the word witness there? That's the Greek word martus, where the word eventually came to be known as a martyr. A witness is just, generally speaking, someone who gives testimony to what they have seen. And so a first century witness or a witness in our day is someone who gives evidence to the reality of Christ in their lives. Um, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, and it is true that many, many Christians over the centuries have spilled their blood and been the ultimate martus or the ultimate martyr. Jesus Christ, in fact, you could say was a martyr. He was killed on the cross because he claimed to be the Christ and indeed was the Christ. He was the faithful witness and many have followed in his train like Stephen and others. Jesus was faithful unto death. 
he says to the church, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What I'm asking you to do, I myself have done. And so he's the faithful witness. Notice verse five, the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? Well, we looked at the term firstborn in Colossians 1, so I won't revisit that, but I'll just say to you that in Colossians 1.18, we have the same phraseology. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ is the first one to experience a resurrection glorified body. Now, other people in New Testament accounts were, uh, they did live again. Can you remember some of the resurrection Uh, And some people say that the people were actually revived because they actually had to die again. But who was raised from the dead in the New Testament? The famous one is Lazarus, the widow's son at Nain, the 12-year-old little girl, right? So we know of at least three there. Jesus Christ, of course, was raised from the dead. But in the cases where he raised people from the dead in his earthly ministry, Lazarus would have to die again. He wasn't going to live forever, The little girl at 12 was going to live her life and die at some point. So Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he's the first one who has a glorified body. And of course, the Bible tells us he will never die again. Another way that this is uh, laid out in the New Testament is he is the first fruits. And this is found in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to show you this because it ties to an end time theme. 1 Corinthians 15, the most famous an in-depth chapter on the resurrection. If you're interested in studying the resurrection, go to 1 Corinthians 15 and spend a lot of time there because it's very rich. But for our purposes tonight, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says these words. But now, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, if you were with us when we looked at the Feast of First Fruits and we looked at some of this imagery, we saw that the first fruits imagery was when the first of the harvest came in, it guaranteed the rest of the harvest. So you had the first fruits of the harvest, and it meant, okay, now we're going to have the rest of the harvest is going to come in. And there was often an offering connected to the first fruits. In Jesus' case, since he is the first fruits of the resurrection, he promises a full harvest. He's the firstborn, the first one, if you will, in a glorified body, guaranteeing the rest of the harvest. And here it says, For since by a man, that is Adam, came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ, when will they be resurrected? At his coming. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, we have two Major events. Of course, the timing of this is debated, but here's what is going to happen. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. The dead in Christ will rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4. You can look at verses 16 and following. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So Christ is the risen Savior. And as he appears to John the Apostle, and John knew him very well, spent at least three and a half years with him in an earthly ministry, he appears as the risen Christ. He's the firstborn from the dead, back to Revelation 1, verse 5, guaranteeing, by the way, your resurrection. He said, if I, because I live, 
you will live also. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. One pastor said, Jesus didn't say, I teach about the resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I, I won't just tell you about it. I am it. I am the one that makes the way. He was raised, the book of Romans says, for our justification. So Jesus Christ is the martus, the faithful martyr, the firstborn of the dead. Um, and he is, notice, the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. We talked a, a little bit about the debate about the, book, the dating of the book of Revelation. There are some who believe that it is dated to the time of Nero, who committed suicide, I think, in 68 AD. There are others who hold it's in the reign of Domitian. Domitian was demanding emperor worship, and he claimed to be this great person and even to be a god. And notice in verse 5, it says that Jesus is the ruler of kings like Domitian or Nero or whoever you want to name. He is king of kings and lord of lords. There's no king that's going to be elevated above Christ. He is the ultimate king. He is your king and my king. And this one, who rules heaven and earth, verse 5, Revelation 1, is the one who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Now, when I mentioned the hundreds and hundreds of allusions to Old Testament um, images and verses, this is one. Jesus Christ loves us. He loves you and me. That is a present reality. He loves you right now. And he released us. If you have a New King James, I think it may have the idea of washing. But here, I think the older manuscripts have, the, have it right when they say, released us from our sins by his blood. What imagery does that remind you of? A release by the blood of the lamb. It reminds you of what? The Exodus. And there are many allusions in the book of Revelation to Old Testament pictures and realities of what God did. And here's one. Jesus Christ loves us and he released us. If you are a Christian tonight, you've been released from a type of Egypt. Egypt's a type of the world. Pharaoh's a type of Satan. You've been released by the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost, sealing the covenant. To be behind the door is to be safe and protected from judgment, and Jesus Christ does that for us. The letter is meant to encourage Christians that Domitian is not the ultimate ruler, Christ is. And Christ loved us so much, he shed his blood for us. God is still in control, John might say to the Christians in Asia. Domitian may think he's strong, but he is nothing. By the way, the Roman historian Suetonius tells us that Domitian, quote, became an object of terror and hatred to all, but he was overthrown at last by a conspiracy of his friends and fa favorite freedmen, to which also his wife was privy, close quote. That means his wife knew that people were going to take him down, and apparently she was cool with it. That's how bad this man was, and Nero was no different. A lot of these Roman rulers were actually lunatics who were probably if not demon-possessed, very influenced by demonic powers. Jesus loves you. He's released you. And he did it by his own blood. And now you are free. 
That's what the book of Revelation tells us. We have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness of our trespasses by his blood. And we have we've been purchased by his blood, Acts 20, 28. And he, verse 6, Revelation 1, has made us. Notice he did it. He made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Good night. No, just kidding. We're, we're not quite done. <laughs> Although that would be a pretty cool place to end. This is called a doxology. And whenever you see a doxology, the word doxa in Greek is the word for glory or weighty. And so when you hear of a doxology, it's a weighty way to say with substance or it's to give glory to God. That's a doxology. And so that's what's here. He has made us a kingdom, priest to his God. In what sense are we priest to God? We're, we're a kingdom of priests. There's a priesthood of all believers. The New King James, and I think the King James says, he has made us kings and priests. But I think it's probably better to say a kingdom and priest to his God. Although I would say it's good to say we are royalty. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has made a transfer of citizenship for you. Having saved you by his blood, he's now transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's your present reality so that even if the human king is off his rocker and persecuting Christians, there is another king reigning and that kingdom is the one that's going to last forever. He has made us a kingdom of priests. What do we offer to God in the new covenant? Well, there's no more animal sacrifices, so what does God want from a kingdom of priests who are in a new covenant by the blood of Jesus? Just a couple simple things. He wants you to present your body as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You'll be trying that for the rest of your life, right? He wants you to offer yourself, not an animal anymore. You offer yourself on the altar. You offer your body as a living sacrifice. Number two, he wants the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his name, Hebrews 13, 15. The book of Hebrews is written to a bunch of Jewish people who are wondering what to do now. If there's no more temple offerings, no more substitutes of animals, what do I do now? You give the sacrifice of praise. That's the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his name. And Hebrews 13, 16 says, and you do good and share with others. With such sacrifices, God is pleased. That's what God wants. But God wants something else. He wants you to be a mediator of the word of God. Our position as priests, says one author, means we mediate God's word or the knowledge of God to others. And so we, as we live our lives, it's both the man or woman and the message that we articulate where we try to bring others into the kingdom. That's why we're here. That's why we're on the radio, by the way. Because we want other people to hear about the truth of Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He wants you to be proclaiming his excellencies as you live for your king and that kingdom. Verse 7. Behold, the word means see, low, look, listen. He is coming 
with the clouds. Oh, I know you were anticipating it. You were saying, Revelation, let's talk about the second coming. What are we talking about? Seven churches and stuff like that and Suetonius and Nero and Domitian. Here it is. Behold, look, he is coming. The Greek word for coming here is erkomai. He's coming with the clouds. And who's going to see him? Every eye will see him. Even notice those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, seems a little odd to say amen here. After people are mourning. Amen. Go ahead and cry. <laughs> amen. We normally don't do that, do we? <laughs> what does amen mean? It means we agree or so let it be. Yeah. That, that, that's a good translation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's amen. It's true. Thank you. You just, on Sunday mornings, don't say, yeah. Although maybe you should, I don't know. All right. It's forever captured on the recording now. It's good, though. He's coming with the clouds. Does this mean he's coming with rain clouds? Is it going to be like a stormy day when he comes back? I don't think so. I think the clouds here has to do with the glory of God. Do you remember when God manifested his power in the tabernacle and even on Mount Sinai, there were clouds associated with it. And it was called the glory cloud. Remember that? And so uh, you often hear the Shekinah glory. What is that? It's the manifest presence of God. It's, it's some way in which you can tangibly see and sense the presence of God. And he's coming with the clouds. I think here, glory clouds. I want you to turn to the book of Daniel. So you're going to go to your Old Testament. And here's where we're going to see an important allusion, although it's almost really a quotation, Daniel 7. And it's found in verses 13 and 14. And I want you to take a look at this language because it's, it, it's going to have an impact on where we're headed, which I don't think we're going to get to tonight. But Daniel 7 is a key passage, and I would encourage you that you um, make sure you've marked this because it comes up over and over and over again. Daniel 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. By the way, it's been said that the book of Daniel is kind of the Old Testament equivalent to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. In, in the sense of being prophetic. I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel 7, 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Behold, 7.13 of Daniel, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man is coming. How often did Jesus describe himself as the Son of Man in the New Testament? Over and over again. He's called Son of God, but we know that on many occasions, he said, he called himself the Son of Man. When people see that, they say, well, what does that mean? 
It's actually, even though you could say he's son of God, he's divine, and he's son of man, he's human, 100% God, 100% man. Son of man is actually more specifically a messianic title of divinity. It actually comes from Daniel 7, 13, and it references this one who comes and has this incredible dominion and power and authority. Jesus is coming with the clouds. In the book of Matthew, if you turn there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew 24, the famous Olivet Discourse, Jesus says this, and I believe he's referring to his second coming, although we do have some scholars who debate this. Matthew 24, said in the context of the second coming of Christ, he says these words, verse 30, Matthew 24, Verse 30. He says, and then the sign of the Son of Man, you can note Daniel 7, 13 again, Matthew 24, 30, will appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the earth, reminiscent of Revelation 1, 7, will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with what? With power and great glory. Now, I think there's going to be two reactions to the second coming of Jesus Christ. One is going to be, uh-oh. And one is going to be, oh, yeah. How do you like that for simplicity tonight? Which camp are you in? Uh-oh. Or, oh, yeah. Okay. In Revelation 6, we have some uh, similar imagery. Revelation 6, back to our book. Revelation 6, to look ahead just for a moment. As John is describing the seals being broken, he has gotten to the sixth seal. And he says, and I looked, Revelation 6, 12. When he broke, the lamb broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky, Revelation 6.13, fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island moved out of their places. Keep reading. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong, every slave and free man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks... Here's the reaction of group A, the uh-oh group. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? I can tell you this. If you want to stand on that day and you want to be kept from stumbling, you must be cleansed by the blood of the lamb. He's coming with the clouds. Now, there are some folks, and I think it's worth showing you this. Go to Isaiah 19, Isaiah 19, who say that these references to the coming of the Lord do not always speak of a literal second coming. I'll show you an example of their argument. I'll leave it to you to wrestle with this a little bit more. But here's an oracle. It's a weighty message spoken against Egypt in Isaiah 19. Here's the language. The oracle concerning Egypt, behold, Isaiah 19.1, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud, is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. 
the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So, the Lord says, I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians. They will each fight against his brother, each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of the Egyptians, Isaiah 19.3, will be demoralized within them. I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Here's the argument. Some say, well, when you have this kind of imagery, it doesn't always mean a literal second coming. It means that maybe God's going to show up through an invading army like Assyria or Babylon and mete out his justice through an army. And so this is simply symbolic language is the argument. Now, I want you to be aware of this because you need to be able to take in the full scope of how people are interpreting the book. I'll just say this. Here's my view. I believe that in Revelation 1-7 and the other passages we'll look at that are clearly second coming passages, that's exactly what they are. But I do think this, that sometimes in Old Testament passages you have foreshadowings of the day of the Lord or foreshadowings of the second coming of Christ, namely the day of the Lord. And remember how I told you, even in the book of Joel, there's a locust invasion and the locust invasion is a foreshadowing or it's a picture of the day of the Lord in embryo. Remember when we talked about that? I think that this is one of the cases. Now, you'll see, if you look at the end of uh, Isaiah 19, and there are people who believe the whole of Isaiah 19 is actually prophetic for the future. But it says this, in that day, 1919, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign, pay, pay special attention to the phrase in that day, by the way, it's in verse 18 and 19. Um, it will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and he will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed is Egypt, notice, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Certainly, last day's implications here, as we look at the Bible, go back to Revelation, and we'll finish with verse 8 tonight. Revelation 1.8. But this is the both a symbolic imagery, and I'll just say this. When you practice a literal principle of interpretation, what you are doing is saying, I'm going to take the Bible in the sense in which it is intended. Remember that? So when it's clearly symbolism, we'll take it as symbolism. When it's maybe even dual prophecy, I, I don't think that in many of these instances it's hard to figure out. In Revelation 1.7, it says... Every eye will see him, those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so, amen. Just write in your margin there, Zechariah 
it says these words. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn, Zechariah 12.10. And finally, for tonight, these words following this um, imagery of the coming of Christ, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, the alpha, alpha and the Omega is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The equivalent in Hebrew is the Aleph Tav. If you want to spell it out, it's A-L-E-P-H. Tav is T-A-V. The first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We could say that God is declaring, I am the A to Z. And those who study this language say, it means, and everything else in between. I am B and C and X and Y as well. I'm everything. I'm the beginning, the middle, and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Remember, he's establishing his authority to assure his people and to obviously speak to their situation. Says the Lord God, notice who is and who was and who is to come. Here's the word pontecrator, the Almighty in Hebrews, El Shaddai. I am the omnipotent, almighty God. Knox has this as, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of all things and their end. Scholars say this phrase speaks of timeless sovereignty. He outlasts all things, anything on the earth. He is mighty. The first and the last is an equivalent uh, phrase. When you see the first and the last, it's simply another way of saying the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, the Aleph Tav, the A to Z. That's what Jesus is. Now look at, that's what God is, but Jesus is part of the triune uh, God. Look at Revelation 1.17. John, and we'll have this for next week, he says, when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, and he said, do not be afraid, and John heard that many times during Jesus' earthly ministry, right? Don't be afraid. I am what? I'm the first and the last, and the living one, I was what? Dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus Christ has to be the subject here because God the Father didn't die. Jesus did, right? And Jesus says, I'm the first and I'm the last. I was dead, and I am alive again. And so this first and last phrase and we'll, we'll close with this, but I have a little bit to show you. Revelation 22, skip all the way to the end. Revelation 22, look at verse 12. Revelation 22, 12 says, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What's your Bible say there? Or the first, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. Do you see how they all connect? To say Alpha and Omega is to say first and last. It's to say the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, which will be in the New Jerusalem, and may enter the gates of the city. Uh, flip over to Revelation 2, look at verse 8. Revelation 2, 8. As Jesus addresses the churches through John, Many of the descriptors in chapter 1 are reintroduced at the opening 
addresses to the churches. In Revelation 2.8, it says, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? The first and the last who was what? Dead and has come to life says this. So you can see that Alpha and Omega, first and last, are all Jesus. Now go away, go back to Revelation 22, sorry. <laughs> Revelation 22, look at verse 16. I, Jesus, this, I'm showing you this because it drives Jehovah's Witnesses crazy. <laughs> I, Jesus, have sent my angel, 2216, to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, Revelation 2220. He who testifies to these things, uh, 2220, yet says, yes, I am coming quickly, amen. Come who? Lord Jesus. Now, before we close, to the book of Isaiah, three verses and the preacher promises were done. Isaiah 41. Now, remember I told you that of all the books of the Old Testament, Isaiah 41, the most allusions are to the book of Isaiah. Here's several of them, just in rapid fire. 41.4. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, who... The Lord, whenever you see the Lord capitalized, that is Y-H-W-H. That is the divine name. It's not Adonai, it's Yahweh, or some people say Jehovah, but the best, closest we have is Y-H-W-H. So all caps Lord is the name of God. I, Yahweh, am what? The first, and with the last, I am he. Now go over to 44.6, Isaiah. 44.6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and there is what? There is no God besides me. My point is this, guys, as you, and go to 48 and we'll finish it. Isaiah 48. <laughs> Pretty soon you can say, we don't believe you, Pastor Michael. 48.11. For my own sake, by the way, I was planning to go all the way to verse 20 tonight. So that shows you uh, it's not going to happen anyway. For my own sake, for my own sake, 48.11, I will act for how can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, my right hand spread out the heavens when I called to them. They stand together. Attention! <laughs> and creation goes, yes, master. That's who Jesus is, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, and the sustainer of his church. And this church here in Revelation 1 was saying, God, are you there? We're going through trials. There's a crazy emperor on the throne. Christians are dying and, and being threatened and losing a lot. And Jesus says, hang on. I am king of kings and lord of lords. Father, we are grateful tonight for the book of Revelation as we look at the powerful testimony of the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You, Lord, are the beginning. You are the end and you are the middle. You started this. You sustain it and you will sum it up. 
And thank you that you've made us part of your plan. In fact, the Bible says you made us in your image. As you made the world and everything in it, some six million forms of plants and animals, incredible design and beauty, the one thing that you made in your image is the men and women that are here tonight, those who will listen to my voice at a later time. We have great value. And Lord, not only did you make us in your image, but you came to rescue us. And this book says you're coming again, and you're going to judge the living and the dead at your appearing. And you're coming in power and great glory. And the Bible says that every eye will see you. It will be like a lightning flash from the east to the west. It won't be hidden in a corner. And there will be some who say, uh-oh, and there will be some who say, oh, yeah. And Lord, you tell us, look up, for your redemption is drawing near. Lord, we don't know when these things will occur. We don't know when the events of the second coming will come to, to stand, whether it will happen in our generation or not. But one thing we do know, we have a personal eschatology. We have our own meeting that will happen with you, Lord. And what we want to hear is well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to be faithful. You have been faithful to us. Help us to be faithful to you. And for that saint who's maybe wondering you know, is Jesus really God? Is he the Christ? Is he the one that I should look to? And is he going to hold on to me? In his right hand are the seven lampstands. And I believe that's a sign that he won't, he won't let us go. So, Father, I just pray that you'd encourage the saints tonight, bless them, strengthen them, anchor their walk, their roots ever deeper with you. Yeah.